Hi, welcome to Harvard Business Review's The New World of Work. I'm Adi Ignatius, Editor-in-Chief of Harvard Business Review. And each week on the show, we speak to a top-tier uh, CEO about this transition moment that we're in to sort of get ideas and inspiration about how we can work more effectively going forward. Um, before I introduce my guest this week, I just want to quickly uh, read a message from our friends at Unisys, sponsor of The New World of Work. Unisys is an IT company that builds critical solutions trusted by demanding business businesses and governments around the world. They partner with clients to enable cloud transformation, protect critical operations, and empower the modern workforce. Visit unisys.com to learn more. So my guest today is Rosalind Roz Brewer, the CEO of Walgreens Boots Alliance. She has a very impressive resume. Before becoming CEO of Walgreens, she served as COO of Starbucks, and before that, as CEO of Sam's Club. In her first half year or so at Walgreens, she started to lay down a strategic rethink that we will talk about later. She also has been an outspoken advocate throughout her career for diversity and inclusion issues. So, Roz, welcome to the show, and thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Um, let me just tell our audience, if you have questions uh, for Roz, please put them in the 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 comments box, and we'll try to get to some of those later in the show. So, Roz, let's start with your career. You um, have had a series of top jobs, as I said, at Sam's Club, at Starbucks, now at Walgreens Boots Alliance. Talk about the challenges of walking into a new company, you know, a new industry in some cases, and projecting the kind of confidence that you need to do, you know, that you need to be able to do your job from day one. Great. That, that's a very good question, especially now. Um, having walked into, um, you know, a healthcare company in the middle of the pandemic. And I think uh, that was a pretty gutsy move, and every day it's proven to be true. Um, but I will tell you that um, I have been fortunate to really accumulate so many different learnings um, over my career. And I'm pretty adamant about making sure that I am clear about my role, uh, what my intent is, and how do I bring together my toolbox I think um, the one thread that I can pull through all of my um, roles and opportunities is my personal leadership. And uh, that's the way I show up first and foremost, because most of these business problems that I face um, in, in these leadership roles, it takes character, it, take guts, it takes guts, it takes um, problem solving. And when I bring that basic you know, toolkit to bear in these different roles, um, it has been proven effective for me every time. So I think um, the other thing I will tell you is that whenever I take on um, a new role, I become a real student of the business. Um, I remember when I joined Walmart after being with Kimberly Clark for such a long time and being in consumer products and going into retail. And I decided to, my job was based in Atlanta, Georgia, but I decided to move myself to Bentonville, Arkansas and go on a learning journey for 90 days. And I stayed in a little small hotel and came into the home office there and really studied them during what I call the honeymoon period. And it was the best thing I could have ever done. I met people, I learned more about retail and um, I really put myself in, the, in a learning position and not in a position initially of leadership. And I chose to learn and be an advocate um, uh, and open-minded about what the opportunities were um, ahead of me. Yep, that's great. So I, I want to ask you, so you are, you know, as a, C a Fortune 500 CEO, you are in, very, in a very elite group. 
um, you know, as a black female CEO in that group, you were truly in rarefied territory. So, mm -hmm. you know, how do you balance the, you know, the pressure, the scrutiny, the expectations that accompany, you know, being, you know, practically the only person like yourself in, in these fields? You know, um, I will tell you, it's um, sometimes, you know, you can feel like, you know, uh, it's it's a lonely position, you know, because you don't see yourself in different um, environments that you're in. And then I look at myself personally and say, what can I do to change this? Because, um, you know, it could be difficult um, at certain times. Um, what I will tell you, though, is I think that the environment is opening up um, more to um, people recognizing the differences and appreciating the differences. Many times, um, you know, I am called upon and asked to give my opinion on diversity issues. And I will be honest with you, I will, I am as frank as I possibly can be, uh, because I do think I hold a unique position. So when I get in these settings, um, I take advantage of an opportunity to learn and educate those around me because I can feel it um, when they're unfamiliar with me or my culture. Um, I don't hide my culture. Um, I talk about it very openly. Um, I feel like that is almost my um, second reason for being. You know, everybody has their purpose in, in how you get into a situation or environment. But I take advantage of it and do everything I can to uh, teach and expose people to my culture and who I am. Um, I learned um, probably sort of early in my career, I'd say maybe five to seven years out of college that um, I really wanted to bring my whole self to work. So I don't cover up my culture at all. And I think that that's helpful for me because they know how to count on me and what the expectations are in terms of interacting with me. So I'm guessing that throughout your career, you've often been, you know, the only woman, maybe the only person yeah. of color in a room full of, of executives. I mean, you talked about bringing yourself, but but can you talk a little bit more about, you know, how do you manage that situation and how do you make yeah. it work? Yes, you know, I, I really do look forward to the day where I'm not really the only um, in these rooms and environments and I'm doing a lot personally to try and make that happen. Um, I will tell you the, you know, the way I deal with this is, you know, Really, I'm actually no different um, than other uh, individuals in the room, and I try and, and share that as well. Uh, my accomplishments come from hard work, um, come from exposure. Um, one of the things I find myself doing, um, fortunate or unfortunately, is sometimes I have to run a few people through my resume because I think they look at my titles and say, ah, did she really do the work? How did she get there? But I have some absolute real lived experiences. You know, I, when I was at Starbucks, I've worked the drive-through window. When I was at Walmart, I threw trucks at night so I could learn distribution, logistics, warehousing um, at those companies. So I've done the, the worst and the best of the jobs. Um, sometimes I have to remind people of that. And um, it uh, gives me uh, credibility that um, I've not been a token. Um, I've not been granted these jobs. Um, I've absolutely had to work very hard to get where I am. And so um, I find myself doing that. But, you know, it uh, it, it doesn't bother me. I, I, I'm hoping, I'm an optimist and hope that that is not what the next person has to do. But for now, I find myself having to really go in a deep dive in terms of my experience and do a lot of storytelling about why I believe in what I believe in. And, you know, I get in a situation, you know, I'm on the business roundtable and we're getting into some really uh, courageous conversations around the new infrastructure bill. 
well, um, you know, I happen to have a lot of experience in the space of what it takes to move goods across the United States. And, um, you know, I've been fortunate enough to maybe share a little bit of that. Um, and maybe people didn't realize that I had a background in that as well, because you can't be in retail and not understand supply chain and logistics. So we actually, um, we're getting some questions from um, our viewers, and some of them were about, okay, how do you, uh, you know, actively learn about a new business? And you, you really sort of answered that and, and sort of jumping in, you know, at the bottom in some cases. Um, let me, let's talk more broadly about, about workplace diversity, you sure. know, in a, more, in a more general sense. Um, you know, as you know, the corporate world, we're all trying to move the needle on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and that has been an imperative since the murder of George Floyd. You know, we should, didn't have to be because of that, but, but that's where we are. Um, what's your view on how companies can pursue a DEI strategy that, that, that truly has meaning? Yes. So, you know, it's interesting. When the George Floyd incident happened, I actually thought I knew it all and I had been doing a good job in DEI. And I quickly realized that um, even myself, who's been a huge proponent of it, myself, who, you know, I'm a double minority, um, you know, myself, a mother of, you know, a young black male, I thought I understood this, but I realized that I didn't. Um, I realized that I had not been asking all the right questions. Um, I had not been focusing on uh, the parts of our environment and our social environment that are very much broken. Um, I think myself included, you know, we have been focusing on the D of DE&I and not equity and not inclusion. And I say that because um, what really happened with the George Floyd incident is that I don't think people understood um, you know, the, the race issues that are happening in our country, those that are left out and those who don't see a way out of their current situation. But we do see putting numbers in place and hiring numbers. But have we asked the questions, um, you know, how can someone survive off of minimum wage? And where is our country on um, great education and access to health care? And, um, and also, too, it made me think back. I, I took it personally when all of that was happening. Um, as you can imagine, I didn't know George Floyd, and not many of us did. But I tried to put myself in the shoes of him, of him and of his family. And I think about the work that, you know, I was doing at Walmart. I was just so adamant about, you know, uh, you know just clearing the way and, and thinking about how can I close in on food deserts, right? If people have proper food and access to the best price, you know, the best cost in food. So, you know, I did everything I could do to put Walmart stores in the right zip codes. And then when I realized that you can do that, but, you know, in, in providing food for early education so people can come to school and learn and engage, that was my focus. But was I listening to take it one level lower, Roz, is what I said to myself and say, so if you put the food right near them and there's still not, you know, proper nutrition and, you know, proper health care in those places, what's causing them from not being able to thrive, right? and get and rise above the minimum wage job and go to the next level and the next level, because that's the history that we know in the United States is to give someone their start and then they take it to the next level. And that's because we haven't done enough work to study and think about, you know, what happens in someone's life when, you know, you're single parenting more than one child and you've got to care for that child. 
And, you know, it's, it's more than cost. It's about their self-esteem. And so we begin to look at things like, how do you feel about yourself? And are we developing that in people? And so I came back at that time when George Floyd's situation was happening, I was with Starbucks. And uh, we began to do work on providing um, mental health access uh, for uh, for communities, for for all of our employees, actually, and and making um, making that accessible. Right, we began to think about what does it mean to really teach and train someone. Are you giving them training materials? Are you teaching them how to learn? And um, recognizing that people learn differently, right? And so for me, that whole situation said that we've been putting numbers on the board from a diversity standpoint, but we're not creating equity. And then there's a piece around inclusion. And I would tell you from an inclusive standpoint, we have not created environments where people feel like they can bring their whole self to their opportunities in front of them. We don't recognize from where they've come from and uh, give them um, the same you know, fair chance and give them an environment where they feel listened, seen, listened to, and seen. And we don't do that. We hadn't been doing that well. And so I, um, at Starbucks, a group of us, the leadership team, um, we made it our, our business to make sure that when we are in stores, we are talking to people and not talking at people. And we're doing more listening than talking. And I had already had the practice of never walk into a retail unit as a leader and have your mobile device out. I never do that. I either leave it in my automobile or put it in my pocket because I need to be present. I need to listen. But that wasn't enough. I was listening and I wasn't acting and I wasn't drilling down enough. And I think that's the you know next level of leadership is that we're going to have to get uh, pretty gritty about listening and acting and making people feel included in the environments that we create as leaders. Uh, so the first takeaway is, you know, leaders, leave your phones in your pockets. Um, let me follow up on that. I, you know, it seems that even when there is diverse representation, that corporate cultures can produce a kind of you know, group think and group group speak. So how do you, you know, how do you create teams um, and including, you know, top level executive teams that are not only diverse, you know, on paper, but truly reflect the kind of diversity of viewpoints that trace to, you know, varied experiences and backgrounds? Yes. You know, one of the things that I think about um, when I'm thinking about diversity is diversity of thought, because, you know, we can also, you know, realize too that, you know, there are individuals who may not be diverse of diverse culture, race, or gender themselves. But where is their mindset? How do they think about um, different cultures and different environments? One of the things that um, I began to do in my career is to put agile teams together. And what I mean by that is a lot of times, you know, you have your finance team working in their silo. You'll have the tech team working in their silo, but um, what I really think works is when we create these agile teams and put them against the biggest problems to solve. That's one of the things I'm doing right now at Walgreens Boots Alliance is to make sure that this organization understands what are the biggest problems that we're going to solve. It's not do we have enough technology, but is the technology fulfilling the need for efficiencies in the organization? Is it creating um, you know, the right tools for our team members at store level and for our customers. So, um, you know, to give you an example, you know, you can have uh, the best strategy in the world, but if your team operates in an environment where they're all in a silo driven, you know, environment, 
um, you're not going to get the results that you expect. So, for instance, you know, right now we're trying to create a tech-enabled healthcare company. Um, I'm saying this, I have the same message for the entire group. And the biggest problem to solve is that how do we become the best performing stock in the Dow? And so when you put that team together, you're forcing finance and technology and operations and manufacturing all to be, you know, in the same room, in the same discussion against the biggest problem to solve. And it's not finance solving a finance problem. And I think what that actually does is it gets the diversity of thought to happen. And then you have different people sitting around the table. And in some cases, um, one of the outcomes that I've seen is that in certain functions, we have heavier opportunity for diversity than we do in others. Um, I would still, I would love to see more diversity in technology. It's coming, but right now I have a lot of diversity in finance. So I get the opportunity to put a diverse financial team to a growing diverse tech team in the room. So diversity of thought is happening around the problem to solve. And then the cultures are coming together and hopefully we'll move all of those um, opportunities up. But it's about creating these agile teams and putting them against, um, you know, the unique problems to solve and forcing them to relate to each other and think about how to solve it. Now, you may say, well, where does race and gender come into that? It absolutely happens, because if you don't have people who don't have the innate ability to be forced to think different about a problem to solve, they absolutely are not going to get there on a discussion with race and gender. So you have to start where people are. People operate in their functions. Start where they are and move them to where you want the organization to go to. It proved successful for me at Starbucks. I'm replicating it again at WBA. That's a really interesting approach. Um, so you mentioned culture. I, I, I read the transcript of your recent earnings call, and you talked about the importance of culture in driving corporate results. I'm interested in your thoughts on how institutions can you know, create and sustain culture effectively when we're now so distributed and where yes. employees want to be even more distributed than we've, than we've tolerated or whatever that we've accepted in the past. It seems to be one of the most one of the biggest challenges right now for, for every institution. It is super complicated, um, you know, and, you know, I've done all the, what I'll say, all the right things. You know, how many Zoom calls can I have? How many times can I have dinner on a Zoom call, happy hour, you know, playing games, all of those things that I hope would keep us bonded together as a team and focused. Um, I will tell you it's complicated, but I, I think what is happening now when I think about this hybrid um, position is we're taking a position that, yes, we can be hybrid. We don't want anyone in our organization to be 100% remote. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One, they get too detached from the culture of the company. And the second reason is we're seeing that there is loneliness, anxiety, and depression in those who do not interact. There is, there is very little substitute for human connection, very little substitute. Um, and I've, um, this is something I'll stand behind. Um, it, you know, I'm no scientist. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a psychologist, but I will tell you, I've seen time and time again, isolation absolutely never works. Um, I stand behind that. Um, we're asking our teams to create opportunities to interact with, you know, their organizations uh, twice a week. Um, come in for lunch or hit the, hit the you know, the, the, the team meeting in person once a week. So, um, you know, even if you're in the other, the second thing we're doing is thinking about where are our hubs. And so could we have hubs across the United States so that you come in and you feel the culture and you breathe the culture and you live the culture? Because 
um, culture is it can't sit on a piece of paper like a strategy can. You can't pull it off and then go create an action. It's the way you make someone feel. Um, it's the way the environment looks. And then the, the last thing I would say about driving culture is to be very, very consistent in aligning your decisions with your culture, mission, and values. Um, you know, there's some great examples of that. Um, you know, for instance, we right now are uh, really uh, stressing the point around the importance of healthcare in this country. And so we've taken a very, very hard stand on why vaccine mandates work. We have delivered 50 million shots in arms across the United States to date, 50 million. And so, and we are um, adamant about vaccinations. Uh, we are a healthcare company. So my, um, my organization at the corporate level has to be 100% vaccinated. I can't have people in the stores, you know, promoting vaccinations and then we're not vaccinated. That doesn't work. So you have to live your culture, your mission and values and be very, very clear about it. Now, can I tell you how much pushback I've gotten about that, right? Because people are being told, people don't like to be told. Um, they think it's a partisan issue. It's not a partisan issue. I take them right back to the definition of a healthcare company and what we're going to stand for in this organization. And so if I didn't do that, they would say, well, that's not, Roz, you're not kind of like, you know, uh, forcing us or allowing us to live our, our, our mission and values. And I've been adamant about it. And there's several examples of that, of making sure that your decisions are aligned with what your culture states. And sometimes it's hard because you can say, wow, financially, this is going to kill me because, you know, um, we, we've got a due date uh, coming of when uh, these vaccinations have to be done. You know, I could have a fallout. I could, I, you know, there may be some people say, OK, I'm done. I'm leaving the company. And you know what? I have to be prepared for that because I have to stand behind. We have to stand behind as leaders of this organization uh, what we really mean about providing uh, localized health care when it matters um, and where it matters. And vaccines um, absolutely are curtailing the spread of this pandemic that we're in. Yeah, I, I love that clarity. Um, I think if I have it right, you have something like 400,000 employees worldwide. Yes. And I'm interested, so even before we get to the sort of the vaccination requirement and what that's going to do to the workforce, um, you know, how are you dealing now with, with just managing talent got harder, you know, that we're in the yes. great resignation or whatever you call it. There's a question from Alexis in Dayton, Ohio, is asking, you know, how are you dealing with the shortage of employees, uh, yes. you know, it, it, within the Walgreens Boots Alliance? So. Talent is, is, it's all stirred up. How are you thinking about talent these days? Yes, and that, that is um, a really big conundrum for us right now. Um, we are seeing it more at our store level. Um, and, um, you know, you may be seeing that in our stores. What we have been doing is to make sure that we do everything we possibly can to retain the current talent that we have. Um, a couple of examples of that, our pharmacists have worked to deliver those 50 million vaccines, those shots, shots in arms, they've been working like mad. And so we wanted to recognize them. So we have adjusted the bonus structure um, and become, you know, close to, you know, a, a best in class bonus structure in uh, the pharmacy um, area. Um, we've looked at uh, minimum wage. So to make sure that we are um, absolutely offering uh, best in class pay. Um, that we can that we can. But then the other part is making sure that people love where they work. Uh, I think uh, the next level that we need to do is to make sure that they have the right job. Some of the jobs now have become very, very complicated. Only imagine working in a Walgreens store where you were the cashier and all you had to do was check people out every day. And that's the job you signed up for. 
But now you have long lines in the store from vaccines and you have people asking questions. They'll ask the cashier about, you think I should get a third dose? You know, and the cashier's like, how do I direct this question? So we also recognize that they have complicated jobs now. So we, we said to them, we see that your job is complicated because we're out here in the stores watching, looking, and, you know, trying to help. So we're seeing them, we're hearing them. And then we're trying to simplify their job. So we're putting in new practices, new policies. So these individuals love coming to work every day. And, you know, and sometimes, uh, believe it or not, it is not about pay. It's about, do I love the environment? So we're doing a, um, a quite a bit of work to say, you're going to have the job that you love. Um, we're going to give you the experience as an employee that makes you want to engage with us as a company. And we realize some are going to step away, right? Uh, but then we hope that we can recruit. And we're doing a lot of work right now in terms of recruiting. And I do think that there's going to be a day that um, people are going to you know, return to the workplace because this is causing most U.S. companies and even multinationals to rethink who they are as a company. And so I think this is a great time for you know, a lot of these companies to um, look at themselves and say, why, why don't I have a company where people say, okay, it's a tough time, but I wanna come to work every day. And so I think this is forcing a better workplace um, in many of these companies. Um, I just had a chance to talk to um, a lot of fellow CEOs and we're all focusing on how do we create the best place to work so that people say, you know, yes, pay me um, for the work that I do, but make me love my job, help me love my job. So as you said, we're in a transitional moment and I think that's, that's true. Uh, some of these areas you talk about, but even more broadly, strategically, the, yes. the, the social health disruptions have caused a sort of strategic rethink. And, and you've talked about healthcare and the importance for Walgreens Boots Alliance, but, but I, think it's, I think you're really undergoing a strategic rethink and, and healthcare is at the forefront of that. Could you talk about what you're doing and, and what that says about healthcare administration, particularly in the US? Yes, and so what's really happening at WBA is we are looking at the really the consumerization of healthcare, and it's not unlike the work that I've done when retail um, went digital and e-commerce came in. Um, this is an opportunity for us to really think about localized healthcare. Healthcare is absolutely local, and if we want to bring access and cost-effective healthcare uh, to local uh, zip codes. Um, Walgreens is prone and primed to do that. Um, we have 9,000 stores across the U.S., and this company has not avoided any zip code in this country. So we are dispersed in the most effective way to localize healthcare. We learned a lot during this vaccine administration um, when, first of all, the education of why vaccines matter, we were in the forefront of that to make sure we were educating. But while we were doing that, it helped us realize is that people don't understand their own personal health. And they had been using our pharmacists all along when they're diagnosed from the physician's office. They grab that prescription. Sometimes they're in a daze, but by the time they get to the pharmacy and the pharmacy says you have three scripts and this is how this needs to be done, the consultation happens with the pharmacist more so with the physician. And we've been in that position. It was, you know, it, and it, it was really just forefront for us as we were administering the vaccines. So this work that we're doing now is to help us really be a part of the solution of reducing the cost of healthcare, which means how do we look at absolute costs? And that's about transparency because a lot of people don't understand what it costs to get treated. So they avoid healthcare, getting care for themselves. And then the second piece is to 
really get improved outcomes in healthcare. And what's so important is to keep people out of the healthcare system. So once you've been diagnosed and you've got a care plan from your physician, all the monitoring, all the day-to-day keep up, all the consultations that you need with a pharmacist or another practitioner so that we keep people from returning to the emergency room because that's when the chronically ill, the most you know, uh, biggest burden on the cost of healthcare is a chronically ill and they're returned back and forth through the system because lack of compliance to their meds or whatever the situation may be. So we're creating 1,000 physician-led clinics in our stores through Village MD, the acquisition we made, and then we're adding 3,000 care centers called health corners where there's a practitioner, either a pharmacist or a registered nurse. And registered nurses in some states now can write scripts. And so this is a way for you to say, okay, I can't get back to my doctor. I'm feeling poorly today, but here's what I'm what, here's what I'm dealing with. I'm diabetic, hypertensive. What's happening here? And so your local pharmacy, your and and you know the the beauty of WBA is that we are within five miles of 75% of the homes across the U.S. And so if you think that you can go within five miles of your home and get some intermediary care, we believe that we can begin to bring the cost of healthcare down. So we're getting a ton of, of, of great questions, of great comments. Um, Roz, if you have a few more minutes, I'd love to get to a couple of those. Excellent. Yes. So, so here's a question from um, uh, the identity is, is Fatima from Iran. Uh, her question is, what would be your advice for women who are struggling to work their way up in a male-dominated environment? Yes. Um, one thing I would say to Fatima or Fatima, how she enunciates her name, um, First of all, the one thing about right now trying to understand the workplace is that we're learning one very important thing is the cost of daycare on young families. Uh, that may not be the case here, but in many cases that is keeping um, women out of the workplace. And I think there are some solutions coming forward around affordable daycare. Um, that's one thing. I would say now, let's say you're in the corporate environment, which I assume um, you are. Um, you know, I think that First of all, make sure you're clear about what, um, who you are and what you stand for and what excites you, what are your passions. And really, really spend some time thinking about that, doing a personal inventory, because for women, what I see is that they want, because sometimes they're held back, they take the next promotion, but it's not what they really want to do. And then they get to the point where they say, you know what, I really don't want to be in a staff position. I want to be in a P&L position but you've probably taken promotions in one area and you can't get out of it. You get pigeonholed. So I really encourage women to really do a personal self-evaluation on what you're passionate about and stick to it. Be willing to say no to a promotion. I took three sideway positions where I came home and told my husband that I got a new job and either I took a pay cut or my salary stayed flat and he wasn't you know, happy about that. <laughs> But the learning experience was tremendous. And those were the three most impactful positions I could have ever taken. I left Kimberly Clark as group president and I took a job as vice president at Walmart, but I wanted to learn retail. And I can't come in as a senior VP of retail. I would have been fired the next week because I didn't know what I was doing. But um, I was willing to take a step down to go much further. And then, you know, that's when my career began to um, really explode. I was in a learning mode, but I took a step back to get, to get ahead. That's really, that, that's fascinating. Um, so here's a question from Octavia uh, in Los Angeles. 
And she's asking as a, as a first, this is a very personal question, as a first generation student in your family, how did your time at Spelman impact your career tra trajectory? Yes. So um, everybody who knows me knows that's the, you know, my deepest love outside of uh, my family is Spelman College because uh, they, that experience, that four years had such an impact on me, you know, being in an environment where um, people um, were studying and learning that looked like me and had similar experiences was very reassuring and reinforcing to me that I could make this happen because I had 400 other women just like me next to me, um, you know, doing the same thing. So it was very, very fulfilling. But I would also tell you that there's something about a liberal arts college, too. Um, I'm a big supporter of liberal arts institutions. Um, I think that they teach you critical thinking. I, I was able to do that at Spelman College, so that's what happens, you know, uh, being at an HBCU. Um, and then I would tell you that it's an environment where, um, you know, the professors and staff and faculty at, um, at an institution like Spelman, it's a deliberate choice to teach there. They're absolutely capable to be at, you know, the PWI or the Ivy League schools, but they choose to um, educate a different kind of student. So the investment was an, an amazing. Um, my uh, senior year, six weeks before graduation, going into finals and studying for the GMAT, my dad passed away. And the, the chemistry department rallied around me and said, you know, go, you know, take care of family, go home. I left 10 for 10 days, came back. They had laid out my, you know, plan for me. I had to take my exams. They didn't, they helped, they made me be accountable, which was really interesting because believe you me, I was saying, well, can I not like take these and graduate anyway? I've given you four years. They were like, no, you've got to take your exams, but we're going to lay out a plan to help you do that. And that was, um, you know, a good, you know, example of accountability. They were making me stand up for myself. Um, but then they were giving me the opportunity and they laid out a plan. I felt so cared for. Um, I left Spelman on the tip of my toes thinking that I could solve all the world's problems. It wasn't true, but I, at least they made me feel that way. <laughs> That's great. All right. I think we have time for one more question. And, you know, you've been great in really sharing very personal stories. And I, I, I want to ask one more personal question. And that's, you know, whether you could share a, a turning point moment in your professional career that really made you the leader you are today. Yes. Uh, you know, um, I would tell you um, probably when I had my uh, my first child and I was a, you know, a young mom uh, trying to stay in the corporate setting. Um, and it was a time where um, I was being tested. Um, I was working for a gentleman who had already said to me, he didn't think that I was smart enough to do the job that I was in. And, you know, and now you're becoming a mom, right? And so that was his thing it was like, you know, let's think about you doing something else. And um, I really, that uh, was a turning point for me because um, I set out to really prove him wrong that yes, I, I am going to be a mom. I'd held off long enough being a mom because of the corporate thing. And I was gonna be a mom and I was gonna prove him wrong. And I, and I absolutely did eventually. Um, he retired early and, um, I actually assumed his, his, his role. Um, and it took me probably, um, you know, 18, 24 months to do that. But, um, I think, um, you know, my leadership showed up, my determination, my steadfastness, but also, 
um, the appreciation that I was a mom. I didn't hide that I was a mom. I did all the things. I went to daycare and all of those things, but I did what I had to do. And it was a turning point for me uh, because I could have easily at that very point stayed home, be a stay at home mom and uh, believe what he said to me. And um, that was a turning point to believe in yourself. Um, don't believe the hype um, of someone else that's looking down on you. Um, and uh, it charged me and it, it still charges me today. And it makes me um, you know, think about the young women in my organization. And when they tell me they're expecting and you know, I'm like, okay, let's get after it. You know, that's fun, that's what you want. You want people to come work for you that have a fulfilled life. And, um, you know, we're built around a family structure. So I want people to have a great family life. Um, I don't want anyone ever to be told what they can't do because of what looks like might be an obstacle or, you know, a little break in time uh, to stop them from being effective. I've seen people become actually more deliberate about the work they do because they have to parse out time. Right. So I got better on my schedule because, you know, I knew I had to get to daycare to pick up a child. So I had to do 10 things before that. So. It was discipline for me, but that changed my life when he said that to me. Um, and I wasn't intentionally pursuing his job. I didn't say to myself, I'm going to put him out of a job. It just happened. Um, and, um, I, you know, I don't know where he is today, but I would, you know, enjoy shaking his hand. I don't know where he is, though. So, Roz, I want to thank you for being with us today. That was a, a great conversation. I would love to find a way to, to do this again or get you back in, in HPR. Uh, so thank you. That'd be great. Thank you, everyone. I enjoyed it. All right. So that was uh, Rosalind Brewer, the CEO of Walgreen Boots Alliance. Join us next week when our guest will be uh, Sandy Spiker. She's the CEO of, of IDEO, the influential uh, design and consulting firm. We're going to talk about design thinking. We're going to talk about design uh, in the future of the workplace. So we'll be airing that live on Monday, December 13th at 12 noon uh, Eastern time. So thank you all for joining us. This is the new world of work.